0: I always swore that if I ever had the opportunity to have my own restaurant one day, it would be a kinder restaurant, a friendlier restaurant. It could be fine dining, but it has to be fun dining. And so that's kind of where the evolution you know, of our restaurants have gone. We have the opportunity every night really to throw a party. Who in any other profession gets to throw a party every night? You know, it's about giving people memories
1: Welcome to Fortnum's Hungry Mind podcast with me, Tom Parker-Bowles. Now, today's guest is one of the greatest chefs of his generation, if not of the era. He's the owner of 11 restaurants and founder of the French Laundry, a game changer in so many ways. I'm thrilled to be joined today by culinary legend, Chef Thomas Keller. Now, Thomas Keller is the first and only American-born chef to hold multiple three-star ratings from the Michelin Guide, as well as the first American male chef to be designated a Chevalier of the French Legion of Honour. Regarded as an icon among his contemporaries, Keller's kitchens have been a training ground for some of the world's top chefs, including Grant Hackett's, Jonathan Benno, and René Redzepi. As quoted in the Michelin Guide... Working the French Laundry is, to the future success of aspiring chefs, what Harvard Law School is to up-and-coming lawyers. Now, without further ado, a huge welcome to Chef Thomas Keller. Thank you so much for making time to speak, and congratulations on the launch of your sixth book, The French Laundry, Per Se. How are you, Chef?
0: Thank you, Tom. I'm great and uh, happy to be with you. So we appreciate uh, the effort on your part, we appreciate the conversation that we're about to have, and we're just we're just thankful, you know, in this time, you know, to be able to have this conversation. So much appreciated.
1: Well, much appreciated from our side as well. And first of all, you know, in this current climate, are you able to open in you know any of your restaurants? Well, fortunately, you know, we began opening our
0: restaurants in in June of this year here in Yonville California, which is in the Napa Valley. And now we have all four of our restaurants open here. We opened uh, most recently, per se, in mid-October uh, in New York City. So those the restaurants in here in California, in Las Vegas, in New York, and in South Florida are all currently open. You know, we're just going day by day, but so far, you know, our, our guests who come to our restaurants are extremely grateful, um, as we are as well, and certainly all of our you know, the whole supply chain in a restaurant, which is so extraordinary vast, you know, from our farmers, our fishermen, our foragers, our gardeners, to even our, you know, our, our florists and our, our linen company um, who really rely on restaurants, you know, for, for their livelihoods. So we're grateful today.
1: And, and this is what you talk about a lot, not just in your new book, but in your books and in general, that restaurants are not just about feeding your guests. As you say, they're a support network. I mean, people see you as right at the top of the restaurant network, I suppose. But the amount of people employed by you and many other restaurants is immense. It's not just about eating, is it?
0: It's not. And, you know, it, uh, it, I don't know if how many of you in the UK know that. Uh, the restaurant profession is the largest public profession in America. It's only second behind the U.S. government. Uh, we employ more than 16 million individuals. That's just the profession, not including the supply chain or all those individuals that are associated with our profession. So, you know, when we go in something like this, you know, we lost, you know, a vast majority of, of our teams uh, to, to COVID. And, uh, and of course, you know, how that impacts uh, and trickles down, you know, throughout throughout our profession and, and and through our economy. And the same thing with you in the UK. You know, I mean, restaurants are the cornerstone uh, of our communities. You know, they're a place, whether it's a fine dining restaurant like the French Laundry or, you know, a casual restaurant like Bouchon. People gather, you know, to celebrate, to nurture themselves.
1: Well, we're all, you know, just at the moment, everything's beginning to reopen. But these are strange times. But restaurants bring us together, as you say, and are hugely important to the economy. But moving now from from the present on to the new book. Now, your new book is an ode to your two restaurants, obviously the French Laundry in California and Percet in New York City, both of which continue to rank among the top restaurants uh, in the world. But what always interests me about your cooking is the way you always talk about take a classic and reinvent it. You know, it just seems to be a, a vein that goes throughout your life. Does that mean make it better or does that make, make it more interesting? What does that mean to you?
0: Well, you know, I've been uh, dedicated to French cuisine since 1977 uh, and, and, and the month of July that year. When I decided to make this my profession, you know, a, a chef that I worked for at the time who was French from Lyon asked me what, why I thought cooks cook. And of course, I fumbled with, with some kind of answer. And He said, no, cooks cook to nurture people. And, and that really resonated with me. So that was really the moment that I decided to embrace this as my profession. And because he was French, it, it kind of, you know, it kind of committed me towards uh, being committed to French cuisine or dedicated to French cuisine. And so, you know, French cuisine for me has always been really important. And here, when we think about it, you know, French cuisine revolves not just around the cuisine, not just around the ingredients, but around wine as well. So we think about those classic French flavor profiles that go so well with wine. And so from our point of view, being an American, which gives me a little more I guess freedom in interpretation. You take a Bordelais sauce, which is a classic red wine sauce, which we're, most of us are very from, familiar with, coming from Bordeaux, made with red wine. You know, it's something that you drink with a beautiful Bordeaux. You have you have a, a, a steak, you know, a bordelaise sauce, and marries extremely well with red wine. Uh, why can't we make you know bordelaise sauce a little different? Why can't We make it a a, a Bordelais vinaigrette, for example. The same flavor profile is a little higher in acid, maybe broken with some beef fat, so it looks a little different. But, you know, in in essence, it's still a Bordelais sauce, though still flavor profiles, still going really well with red wine because, again, we are in – America's premier wine growing region, Napa Valley. So our guests come here not just to experience great food, but to also experience great wine. So we have to be responsible to that, to that moment. We can't do food that doesn't really marry well with, with, with wine. And so we think about this, these terms and taking classic flavor profiles and just, just reinterpreting them somewhat, but maintaining the authenticity of that dish.
1: That's so true. But how important is it, just like a, an artist or a sculptor, that you have to learn the basics of, of a trade or an art uh, before you can start reinterpreting and reinventing it? I mean, you started, you started young. Your, your mother is a restaurateur. And what, what age did you start in the kitchen?
0: Well, you know, I started at a very early age, probably 13 or 14 years old. Um, you know, going after school, instead of going home, I went to where my mother worked, to the restaurant, uh, and there would do my homework and then, you know, get put in front of a dishwasher to wash dishes. My older brother, Joseph, got to peel, peel vegetables or even in some cases maybe help the cooks do some things, some simple things. And so that was kind of the nucleus of our of our life between school and, 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 and a restaurant. And so I felt really, really comfortable in, in that environment, especially in the kitchen. And so for me, it became the foundation of, of, of my life. And I learned so much. You know, I, I think about those times you know, standing in front of a dishwasher. And I talk about the six disciplines that I learned standing in front of a dishwasher, Uh, the ability to be organized, the ability to be efficient, the ability to really, really receive critical feedback, which, as you know, is so important. It's nice to always get praise for something. But we learn so much more uh, when we get proper critical feedback, the importance of rituals, the importance of repetition, and the importance of teamwork. Those were the six disciplines that I learned standing in front of the dishwasher, even though I didn't realize it at the
1: moment that I was doing it, it became one of the building blocks uh, for my career. And, and those six disciplines have gone all the way through and you've taught many generations of cooks and chefs about them. But when you first walked into that kitchen, did you feel this is where I'm meant to be or was it, oh, it's just an after school job? Did you did you really even dishwashing feel the passion, the excitement of the professional kitchen?
0: Well, my mother, you know, and thank God, my mother was my first mentor. And so she instilled in me this drive to continuously do better and and do better in small ways. It doesn't always have to be some quantum leap. It could be every day just doing a little better than than the day before. Uh, The sense of awareness, the awareness around you, right? The world around you so that you can open up yourself to possible influence and inspiration. You know, in that kitchen at, at that time, at that very young age, it was just keeping myself busy, um, doing something that was productive, you know, actually doing something my mother wanted me to do. You know, I mean, we all all want to please our parents, you know, especially our mothers. I grew up in a single parent home. So, you know, to please my mother was was gave me great, you know, great gratification. Um, and it was just a beautiful thing. So those are the reasons that I stayed in the, that I really became comfortable in the restaurant or that I was why I was in the restaurant and therefore became comfortable.
1: And from that point onwards, I mean, this is, this is a sort of, you know, a really interesting culinary upbringing, but it was at the Junes Club that you began to discover the basics of classical French cookery.
0: Yeah, that was, uh, that was what I spoke about early July, 1977, working for Roland Hennan, who became, was my third mentor, actually, because my brother Joseph, um, you know, when I was at the Palm Beach Jacques Club in the early 70s, really taught me how to make hollandaise sauce. So in, in the French Andy cookbook, which is my first book, I, you know, I, I wanted to to really tell stories and, and the importance of and, and there's a section in there. There's a story in there about the importance of making Hollandaise sauce. And that's just it. Making it every day understanding the nuances of it understanding how far the limits of making a holiday sauce both in temperature and fat added, and cooking and all these different things you know how to fix one if it broke all the nuances of, of a holiday sauce by making it every day and that's that you know that repetition it was a ritual that had to be done at this time became a repetition and then you know you get really comfortable with it but it was 1977 in july when when chef hannon asked me that question you know why do cooks cook um and he answered that we we cook to nurture people and that was the day that I decided to embrace the profession as my profession and went on from there, you know, and my goal was always to go to France. Um, and I finally, I finally succeeded that five, six years later uh, when I moved to Paris and was able to stage. at that time it was much different than it is today. But that was my, you know, that was my true I think, you know, college experience, if you will, for that almost two year period of time, working in Paris in in seven different restaurants uh, and and learning about the food. And it's interesting because there were many other people like me and many other young culinarians like me from different parts of the world who were much younger uh, and therefore they hadn't started to build the foundation, as you mentioned earlier, about understanding the fundamentals of cooking right? Some of the classy, how to make a stock, for example, all these different things um, that were so, so important as a foundation. And so what I was able to focus on was not the foundation of cookery, but I was able to focus on the details of what they were doing, you know, and, and that became really kind of a catapult for me um, in returning to America.
1: And was it still that very, uh, well, quite macho culture in those kitchens, you know, to speak when you're spoken to, very hierarchical?
0: It was. I I think the one standout uh, for me, there were actually two stands out. Um, There was a small restaurant called Michel Pasquet. Uh, Michel Pasquet was the chef of a one-star restaurant. And he his his team was was very collaborative, was very welcoming, um, and, and they were they were a lot less intimidating um, than some of the other restaurants. Talivant was another one. Chef Claude Delini was the chef at the time who really embraced me uh, in a way um, that that taught me a great deal, not just about cookery, but about kitchens and about attitude in kitchens. Um, I would be able to stay between the uh, lunch and dinner service. Right, you normally take a break between lunch and dinner service. Um, I would stay once one or two days a week. And he would teach me little techniques uh, that he would that he would work on during that during that down period between the two services. Uh, I remember there was one chef de who was not really warming up to me. And I saw him trying to flute a mushroom and I was very good at fluting mushrooms. And so I walked over to his station and I helped him out. And it's just that little things you don't it's not really about conversation. Uh, It's just about that that opportunity to give somebody uh, some support you know, him watching me food a mushroom and help him, uh, you know, get his mise en place
1: ready was something that bonded us together my whole time I was there. So you, you had this classic training. At this point, you went back to the States, to New York. And with, with this roundabout sort of 1984, you came back. And, and again, at that point, did you have a culinary confidence by that point to think, I know what I want to do now? I want to be a, a great chef, a restaurateur, or I mean, did you, you knew exactly what you wanted to do then?
0: Yeah, I, I had two things. I mean, my path was always set from that July 1977 and becoming, you know, a, a chef that's associated with French cuisine and, and being able to to really execute at a very high level. But I, I I came back with a culinary confidence, but also, which was, you know, which was a learning moment for me, uh, a, a sense of arrogance. And my first job um, was at one of the great La Lu restaurants in New York City. And, you know, in that period of time, and certainly since uh, since Le Pavillon opened after the um, the World's Fair in 1938, they had all the great La La restaurants, you know, Le Pavillon, Le Côte Basque, La Caravelle. Um, and I was the head chef of La Reserve. So I was the first uh, American chef in one of the great La La restaurants. And I approached it with a sense of arrogance and, uh, and you know, it, it served me right. I was, I was terminated at some point, you know, before the year was out. And it was a great learning experience for me. You know, you think about those moments you know, when you get critical feedback and certainly, you know, being fired from a job is like the most critical feedback that you can get. And you learn from that, you learn from that, that there's really no place in a kitchen, in a team, right, for any arrogance or any ego. And that was a real moment in my life. Again, we have these these, these turning moments in our lives. And that was a moment in my life where, you know, it was a great learning experience and and changed me in so many different
1: ways. And you had all this experience and and a huge amount of experience. But what I find fascinating about the new book, and and it's one of those books that you take to bed and read from cover to cover. And I'm, you know, I like cooking, but I look at some of the recipes and think, okay, but they're inspiring. But in the book, you say. Uh, a twill recipe in Gourmet in the late 80s launched the French Laundry.
0: Well, it, it, it was about the coronet. Um, so, you know, I, I again, I had a restaurant in New York City called Raquel. Um, my partner, Serge Raoul and Thomas Keller, um, you know, the last names together uh, made Raquel. And it was it was a restaurant in a new neighborhood. Uh, in New York City, not a super fine dining restaurant, but certainly uh, a dining restaurant with with high culinary expectations and high and high service expectations. And so we, we worked really, really hard at, at being able to to make that restaurant successful for a number of different reasons. We failed after five and a half years. And I, I was I was left again with this with a choice in paths. And I chose to instead of modifying my culinary expectations for Raquel, I decided to, to part ways and move to L.A. I took a job with a, with a hotelier there who challenged me with this with this moment and said, you know, you're we moving to New York at a time where there's, there's this extraordinary culinary extravaganza. I want you to prepare a dish that's going to wow the Angelinos. Now, imagine that I am. You know I, I've just lost my restaurant. I'm somewhat you know sad about the moment. I'm leaving New York City. Where I spent, you know, the past 10 years and never thought I would leave New York City was, you know, my friends were there. My restaurant was there. And now I have to prepare something that's going to wow the Angelenos. Um, so I, I had my farewell, one of my farewell lunches in Chinatown, as, as we did with some great friends. We walked across the street to Baskin Robbins, um, as we always did when we went to, to this restaurant to get an ice cream cone. And, you know, I'm I'm not thinking about a lot, but I'm aware, I'm constantly aware of the world around me. As I mentioned before, my mother made sure that I was aware of the world, aware of things going on. And the young lady put that ice cream cone in front of me. Uh, and at that moment, I saw the coronet, which has now become a classic, you know, preparation and served at the French on per se, all the time. Um, I saw that coronet. I saw I saw what was the future in that coronet, something that was never done before, but had some reference points, certainly in American culture and I think also in, in European culture, an ice cream cone. Something that we've experienced over and over again in, in our youth and in our adult life. It was it was a two bite thing with a napkin and you were done. So you could have a glass of wine in one hand and eat the corn in the other. So there it was efficient. In, in a way, it had reference points, right? So the first coronet was done with tuna tartar and wasabi. So it had that kind of Japanese feel to it. And it became the salmon coronet with the creme fraiche and, and, and sweet onion cream. Um, Again, you know, it's a cracker in a way, you know, with fish on it and and, in the interpretation that became the French audience's interpretation, it was done as a cracker with with salmon, sour cream and onions and those flavor profiles we understand, but it's served in a way
1: that's got to make you smile. I mean, it's just too damn cute not to make you smile. But that's what I feel so much with your, with your cooking, is that despite being based in the purest and most classical of, of high French cuisine, there's a sense of humour and there's a hominess. You talk about, I don't know, your smoked sturgeon Riette, on everything bagel or the champignard de bois. There's, there's a sort of wry smile to everything, not ironic, but a pleasure. You know, It, it breaks down the very pompous, quite scary fine dining experience. Sure.
0: And, 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 you know, and I, I experienced that as, as a young person many times in, in restaurants that I go to, especially French restaurants that I go to. I always swore that if I ever had the opportunity to have my own restaurant one day, it would be a kinder restaurant, uh, a friendlier restaurant, a restaurant. It, it could be fine dining, but it has to be fun dining. And so that's kind of where the evolution you know, of our restaurants have gone um, is we are serious about our food. We're serious about where our food comes from. We're serious about supporting those individuals who bring us that food, right? We're serious about our service. We're serious about our staff. We're serious about our guests or we're serious about our wine list. But this at, at, at that moment when the guest arrives, they're celebrating. They want to be happy. We have the opportunity every night in, in all of our restaurants, not only the French Rondier per se, but all our restaurants, really to throw a party. Who in any other profession gets to throw a party every night and give our guests memories, right? So, you know, our definition of success has nothing to do with fame or fortune. You know, it's about giving people memories that they hold, you know, true to their hearts for the rest of their lives. And, and, and that's one of it. I always love when somebody comes to the restaurant and they say, this reminds me of, and they tell me the story of this other restaurant they were in that they had so much fun, great food. And, you know, I hope that that same person goes to another restaurant and says, oh, this restaurant reminds me of the French Laundry or this restaurant reminds me of Per Se." You know, we have to continue to evolve our restaurants. The the cuisine can be as serious as we want it to be, the food can be as extraordinary as we want it to be, the service needs to be proper. But our restaurants need to continue to evolve. Uh, and, and that's important. And that's what this book is about. Mostly it's all about evolution. And you think about you know the French audio when it was when when we conceived that I conceived in 1994, uh, and we opened up those first days and this and, and our first night was a total disaster, Tom. I can't tell you. It was just it was. You know, Ron Siegel, who was working for me at the time, who became, you know, another well-known chef, you know, he he was asked the question, uh, what was one of the most memorable nights in a restaurant? He said, oh, the first night, the French Rondi, it was like the sinking of the Titanic. Uh, It was true. (laughs) And, And we came back the next day. I mean, the next day we came back with a whole new, right, operating mode. And we change the menu every day from that moment forward. And it's been part of our culture. It's been part of our culture to continuously evolve. And, and Per Se was born out of this wonderful philosophy and culture that is the French André. And that's how Per Se was born. And We took, we closed our restaurant. We closed French André for five months. I mean, imagine that, closing a restaurant for five months. move 30 of your staff to New York City temporarily, right, to inoculate a new team, to give them you know, this, this, this the, the this culture to, to, to give them this philosophy, to teach them the repertoire, you know, all the different elements of restaurant and then how that restaurant has now given back to the French Laundry in so many different ways. And now, you know, how they collaborate together, you know, not only on, 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 ideas and how to do things and repertoire, but sharing, sharing staff, sharing team members between our restaurants. It's such a beautiful thing you know, and I'm so proud that if I'm proud of many things, this is one of the things I'm most proud of is this idea of two restaurants that, that, are, that have a collaborative uh, existence um, and they work together. And, and, and sometimes it's competitive. You know, I mean, right now there's the Cory Childs in, in, in New York City. David Breeden's here. They work together for years in per se together. Now they're they're heading to, as you point out, you know, two of the most important restaurants in our country, maybe in the world. And, and how lovely that is to watch these two young chefs of cuisines work together, but also kind of like, you know, push each other a little bit, you know, in, in what they do. And so it's, it's a moment for me in, in my career and in my age and, and watching, you know, the next generations. Right, There are three generations now that I, that I, that I see coming up. Uh, and each one of them is going to be better than the previous generations. We stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. We can never forget that there's nothing there's nothing new about we do what we do right it's 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 the way we do things that's the most important and you know for that point was such a big part of my life but I never worked for him he he had passed away by the time I came into the profession it was such a profound impact on me his book you know Paul Bocuse you know an extraordinary chef who who you know as a young cook I I I read his books you know I, I saw his stories you know and and then and then to get to meet him and then to get to be a friend of his. I mean, these are the things that happen in our profession.
1: What I find also fascinating is if you think about another legendary figure of American cuisine, of Alice Waters, although her cooking style is very, very different from yours, you both share an absolute obsession. You honour your producers, your farmers, your fishermen. You look for the very best seasonal produce. So despite the plates looking slightly different, you're very similar in many ways, like all great chefs are. Yeah, Alice
0: is, you know, it was Alice and, and Jean-Louis. And, you know, Alice did a great job um, here in California at the time. You know, for me, you know, I, I gravitated towards Jean-Louis, number one, because he was French and I was doing French cuisine. Uh, he was on the East Coast. I was on the East Coast. And he was he was a chef of the highest level in fine dining. And so that made me, you know, look to him as an icon, right, as as somebody to follow. You're right. Alice Waters, you know, their, their paths were parallel at the same time. They both said, You've got to support your farmers, your fishermen, your foragers and gardeners. You, you, this is the way to go. You know, Unfortunately, you know, John Lee passed away and Alice is still there. She is still championing, you know, what she does. I mean, the Edible Schoolyard is such an amazing program all around our country, you know, teaching, you know, elementary school students the importance of food. And, and this is this is this is going to continue to go on. Education and food is so, so important for us all.
1: And going back to the whole idea of mentoring, you mentioned in a recent interview that one of your proudest achievements was the fact you're now mentoring a second or even third generation of chefs after your own. I mean, why is the idea and practice of mentoring so important to you?
0: Well, because I had I had great mentorship uh, and without that mentorship. And, you know, there, there are dozens of people out there who mentored me in different ways for different periods of time. Mentoring is so important. And we think about what happens. For me, there are three elements in in what we must do as professionals to encourage and to elevate and to evolve our profession. And this could be for any profession. First, hiring, right? That is critical. And you have to be committed to that person 100 percent. That person has to be committed to 100 percent. So that hiring process is not just when we need somebody. The hiring process is is a marriage of expectations, and you know we want our 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 new staff members before they're even hired to come into our environment, whether it's the dining room, whether it's the kitchen, wherever, and 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 get to experience that before they commit to it. They have to feel confident that they can succeed in that environment. It gives us an opportunity to also to see them in our environment before they make that commitment. But once that commitment's made, it's a hundred percent. You can't say, well, I'm going to commit to 70%. If he works out, he works out. If he doesn't, he doesn't. That's that, That's just that's foolish. That's a waste of time. 100% commitment. Then comes the training, right? And training is key. Training is so important. As I said, I may have been trained for two weeks on the Poissonier station, and then the Poissonier left, and I'm there just fumbling around trying to make sure that I do the right thing. I only had two weeks training. It's like there's an entire year of products that go around and menu development, all these different things. And I only had two weeks of time to understand not just the repertoire, but the philosophy and culture of this kitchen. Impossible. Impossible. So we we many times we flailed. And that was you you, you felt the wrath of a chef because he was frustrated with you because you didn't know what to do. And you didn't know what to do because you weren't trained correctly. So training goes on and on and on. And I always I always use the analogy. Of, or the example of, of, of children, right? When you're teaching your child how to swim, you've got these floaties on their arms, right? That keeps them above water. And you don't say, I'm gonna take them off in two weeks and if you drown, that's your fault, right? You keep those floaties on probably three or four months after they've learned how to swim just to make sure they don't drown. And that's that's the dedication to training. And then mentorship. The third thing is the mentorship. Mentoring in their, in their careers, in that moment of time. And in in some cases... in in their personal lives and making sure that they understand, right? And and you're exemplifying what it means to be part of this profession. And and that's so important. So if you hire somebody correctly, if you train them thoroughly, and if you mentor them in a positive way, what happens? That person has to be better than you are. Because if they're not better than you, then you've done a poor job. And the last thing I want to (laughs) do is to be labeled as somebody who's done a poor job. So I look at Corey Chow, or I look at David Breeden, or I look at Jonathan Benno, or, or, or Corey Lee, or Timothy Hollingsworth, or Grant Ackett's, you know, all these people that have gone out to do wonderful things. And, I, and I, it makes me, it reassures me that I've done those three things correctly, because I truly believe that those chefs are better than I am.
1: Wow. I mean, talking of which, a young chef who I can't even begin to imagine how many thousands try to get a stage with you to come and start at the bottom. But what advice would you give to a young chef looking to, wow, just get into the get into the business, into this very, very high end, hard working type of cooking?
0: Well, I mean, you know, I, you know, fortunately today there are so many different things we can do in our profession. So, you know, whether it's fine dining, casual dining, I mean, you know, there, there, there's so many different dining options out there. So you really, really understanding what, what you want to pursue, what makes you happy. Do you want to, you know, go working in a smokehouse? Cause you love the idea of working with wood and, and barbecuing or, you know, things like that. So really, I mean, the diversification of opportunities that we have in front of us as culinarians is extraordinary and wide. And one of the things I always want to emphasize with any young culinarian is patience first. Be patient with your career, right? Don't, don't always, always want to do something different. I mean, we're cooks. If you're a cook, you're going to be cooking the rest of your life. So it's going to be the same. So embrace this idea of patience. Uh, the other reason I want you to embrace the idea of patience is because as you continue on your path and become more successful, you'll be pulled away from the reason you became a cook to cook. The idea of cooking for me was, was so profound that I, I, I spent a lot of my, my younger life pursuing that, right? Being able to, to brunoise vegetables really well or julienne vegetables or learning being on the line as a chef de partie, whether it was a saucier, poissonier, entremetier, garmanger, that interaction between, between all the chefs de parties around the line and that, that true teamwork that really epitomized what I wanted to achieve in being able to cook the actual purpose of cooking. Because once you start to become a sous chef, you start to become a manager. So you come you, a little further away from the functionality of cooking, the reason you became a cook. You become a chef de cuisine, you're even further away from that. So take the time, be patient, enjoy the moment that you have in those positions because those, once you once you get out of that position, once you're elevated from that position, it's hard to go back. And then the other thing that I always tell, be persistent. Don't let anybody ever tell you you cannot do something. You can do anything you want. You'll run into, you'll you'll struggle, you'll be challenged, you'll fail. But if you're not persistent, you'll never get to where you want to be. You know, persistence was such an important part of my life. I mean, I failed in so many different ways, but I I always knew if I quit, I was never going to get there. So I never quit. So persistence, patience and
1: persistence. Very, very good. Now, I mean, finally, just moving on to the whole thing of the digital age. uh, When you first started, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s even, it was about a whole lot of very powerful critics uh, who gave their lofty opinion. And they perhaps had, you know, they'd learned, they'd read, they were perhaps experts in whatever it was, uh, fine dining or, or not. Now, and as you said in 2014, the customer is not always right, but the customer is always the customer. Everyone now has a voice, quite rightly. Everyone has a view. Has social media changed the way you feel about people in your restaurants? Has it changed the way you feel about food at all?
0: Not really. We try to ignore that kind of thing, and as we always have. I mean, we try to manifest in ourselves what our goals are. We're our own worst critics. I mean, we could do, you know, 70 guests tonight, and 69 of them are going to be extremely happy There's going to be the one guest that was disappointed and that's what we're going to go home with. That's, what's going to keep us up at night. Why, what happened? Was it too salty? I mean, you know, what, what happened? And we, we are really, you know, focused on, on what we think we've done, what we think we've achieved, how well we have done. Uh, That's the most important thing. and And I would say that to anybody, right? You need to feel really, really good. You need to feel positive. You need to feel successful about what you've done. If you don't, then you know what you have to do to get that feeling again. We, we are very lucky. I mean, again, we're, we're in the restaurant profession, you know, whether it's service. or. And, again, I want to make sure that we're talking about not just culinary because there are so many different teams. I always use the sports analogy, right? We're like a football team or a soccer team. There's an offense. There's a defense. There's special teams. There's special occasions. All these different things that happen in a restaurant. It's not just about a chef or not just about a culinary team that's important. Um, so, you know, we have to feel happy with what we're doing. And if we're not happy with what we're doing, we, we, we typically know what we need to do tomorrow to make it better. Or in many cases, what we need to do on the next dish that we're preparing to make it better. Uh, we have this opportunity. And remember, what we do is not, it's not brain surgery. So we're not going to kill anybody. I mean, the worst we're going to do... Is over salt something, or or under season something, or overcook something, or come up with some some cockamamie composition that doesn't really work, and you know they don't really like it. But you know, it's it at the end of the day, it, it's just food. It's a moment. So don't we take it seriously, but we also understand that it, we can always continuously improve and make things better. If it's if it's always for one guest at a time, that's one of, one of our mottos is one guest at a time making sure that we focus on that one person each time and and give them that experience when they leave the restaurant they feel wow this was great this was a great experience for me this was a great memory for me that's our focus
1: and this is what you say in the book you say when you acknowledge as you must there is no such thing as perfect food only the idea of it then the real purpose of striving towards perfection becomes clear to make people happy that's what cooking is all about Absolutely, absolutely, and that seems to run through all your food, all your restaurants.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's true for for most chefs. I, I really do, and you know, and again, you know, there, we 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 at different ages we we respond differently, and, and you know this to be true as well. I mean, you know, when we're young, we tend to be a little more arrogant. You know, we get a little more feisty. Um, you know, and as, as we grow older, we mature and we, we, we get a sense of wisdom um, and a sense of calmness about us and, and a different point of view on how to do things. I, you know, as, as, a, as a young cook, you know, I, I, I kind of mimicked what I learned from chefs I worked for, which was this sense of, you know, pounding your fist on the table. Right. And now all that I have to do is walk up to somebody and, you know, just draw them near to me and say, I was really disappointed in what you did. And that that shocks them more than pounding my fist on the table. Just a soft, you know. I'm really disappointed in what you just did there. Do you think we can do better next time? And they look at you and go, yeah, chef, I can do that better. And so it's this moment of connectivity, right? It's this building this relationship with, with your team that's so important so they understand completely what your expectations are. They also understand critical feedback is part of their life uh, and an important part of their life. So it's part of being a leader and and, and we'll continue to make mistakes. I will continue to make mistakes, but, but I'll realize my mistakes and I'll always try to do better uh, the next time. And that's what we have to do, be better every single day.
1: Wow, a, a, a high benchmark. But as we sort of get towards the end of, of our time, I hear from uh, you, Inventors, the CEO of Fortnum & Mason, that you're a big fan of their shortbread.
0: I, I I am so much a fan of their shortbreads. This is actually my favorite tin. Uh, I love the fingers. Um, They're my favorite. It's, it's been something that every Christmas time I'll get a, a, a tin or two of shortbreads. But also friends who are coming over from the UK will, will, will know me as that shortbread person. They'll bring me a, 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 a tin of shortbread, So. And I, I think really it's the it's the butter. I think we make a really good shortbread at the French Laundry. The butter in the UK is so much more flavorful than our butter here, even our best butter here. And so there you go.
1: Very, very high place. Again, we're nearly out of time today, but just before we go, Chef Keller, I'd love to run through a series of questions that we put to all of our podcast guests. So they're they're very short and very easy. First of all, I mean, if you are a tea drinker, are you a tea drinker? I am not. Only when I'm sick. Ah, OK. So a coffee drinker? I am. So in terms of coffee, what would be your perfect cup of coffee? Well, I'm an, I'm an espresso drinker,
0: so I, 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 love, I love a double, double, double espresso. And the, I guess the best espressos I've had in the world were my times in Australia and uh, Sydney. They seem to take their coffee a little more seriously than anywhere else in the world, and, and including Italy. But um, the, the coffee the coffee houses in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, are, I, and I don't. I'm not sure what it is. It's kind of like the the shortbreads from the UK. It's just it's just a different flavor. It's a different feeling. It's a different texture. Something that I really enjoy.
1: It is, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. Sydney and Melbourne, they take coffee. Even in the Seven Eleven, the coffee's better than most places in, yeah. in the UK or right. in the US, isn't it? Yeah. it? yeah, it's got that. A lot of it's got that sort of citrus tang at the back. I don't know what it is.
0: It's also the viscosity of it. It has this this, this richness and
1: thickness to it that's just so you know so satisfying. Yeah, Australia. I would love anyway, Australia's a whole. I would love that place. What What's your most joyful memory when it comes to a meal? You know, it's really about. It's really about the the people that you're with. I think the
0: most important decision when you're when you're making a reservation is not which restaurant you're going to, but who you're going with, because it's 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 your friends and your family and your loved ones um, that really make that moment um, so so special. Um, so I think the, the, the fondest memories I have. Or, you know, from my my family time around food, my mother, who didn't really cook a lot, but you had the occasion two or three times a year to cook dinner for us. And those were around the holidays and your birthdays. An angel food cake that my mother would make was, I mean, you know, those are just moments that you have those memories, not just about the food, but about about the love, right? And I think that's an important thing about the affection, that emotional connection to who we are and, and to food. And we all have those, we all have those connections. And, you know, they're there, they're, they'll be with us for all of our lives. Even though you may have a better angel food cake somewhere else, no one made, made it like your mother. It's just just no one, no one can compete with your mother's angel food cake. And as, as an example, you know, from a professional level, you know, eating in colleagues' restaurants, you know, I've had some extraordinary meals uh, only because they're friends. And cooking for friends um, is something that's also very special. You know, whether it's Danielle Bouloud's restaurant or John George Vandridge you know, or Chef Ducasse, you know, or any, any of the great chefs around the world where I've had the, the opportunity to eat in their restaurants. And, you know, we have, we have a relationship and being able to experience food that, that comes from that relationship is so important.
1: And so satisfying. Of course. And, and I mean, in terms of jumping into the next one, what, what, f- what food or drink do you wish you'd invented? Tabasco sauce. Hands
0: down, Tabasco ah, sauce. The greatest I sauce mean, on earth. <laughs> every home, you know, almost every home in America, almost every bar around the world, every oyster bar, you know, any, it, there's, there's always Tabasco sauce. You know, it's, peppers and vinegar and water and salt i mean think, think about it if there's anything that and it's been there for generations i mean
1: it is i i, I make a pilgrimage every two years down to Avery island i i do think that it is one of the great products on earth i i, I carry it's like culinary first aid you can take yeah. it on an airplane you can take it anywhere i feel naked without tabasco
0: yeah it's just one of those things right i mean that, yeah I mean, not to mention the, the financial rewards that, that you get from this morning or, I mean, with Tabasco sauce.
1: Uh, and it's family owned by the lovely Macleaneries, of course. But anyway, on we move. I, I read a quote recently where you said that music in the kitchen is an essential ingredient. What music do you tend to listen to? I love music
0: I, I, and I, love, I think I love all music. I have a great appreciation for all music. So I think that, you know, for us in a kitchen, you want to have something that's upbeat, something that, you know, creates some energy. For me, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be classic rock and roll. You know, from the British invasion, right, you know, all the way through probably the 70s, maybe into the 80s. Um, but then there's also that, that American rock and roll, right? Buddy Holly's, the Elvis Presley's, the bebops. And and, and that's really, again, gets a sense of, of joy. And I think that's what we want from music. Music is the world's best drug, right? It, 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 could, it could change the way you feel in a second. You know, that song comes on. That you remember, and, and 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 you just your whole attitude changes, you know, in, in just in 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 a millisecond when that song comes on or those songs come on. So, yeah, music is an important part. We don't we, we, we have to be careful how much music we play in the kitchen because it can be very distracting. <laughs>
1: okay, what are the three ingredients you think are essential store cupboard items?
0: Well, first it'd be salt. Two two ingredients: salt and acid. Um, acid can become in the forms of vinegar or in the forms of citrus juice. But those two ingredients enhance flavors, and use and used correctly, um, they they really make food flavors profound. Right? We all know we've tasted bland food before, um, and why is it bland? Because there's no there's no salt in it. There's no there's no elevation of the flavor of the the, the primary flavors of the dish. Um, so you know, using salt correctly and using acid correctly. are are probably the two most important ingredients that we have. Uh, And then, and then the third is, is, is fats, right? So olive oil, you know, vegetable oils, those kinds of things where, you know, we really, we really use them to add that, to add that texture to it. We also use them as a cooking vehicle. So think about olive oil and vinegar, right. And salt on a, on salad. I mean, those, those are the three primary ingredients that you are going to make a really beautiful, simple salad from. And, 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 and there's something so satisfying about eating garden lettuce with, you know, olive oil, salt, uh, and vinegar.
1: Fantastic. And finally, w- when you're at home, away from the pressures of one of the, you know, two of the great kitchens or more in the world, what do you love to cook or eat at home? Well, you know, I love to just throw things on the grill,
0: on, on the back porch, you know, vegetables from the garden on the grill, um, you know, I can roast a chicken on the grill, you can grill a beautiful piece of meat, um, fish. I, so it's just simple. It's It's, Typically, a piece of protein, whatever the protein is on the grill in whatever fashion I, I, that I want to cook it, vegetables, uh, and then just a beautiful salad. It is a very satisfying, simple meal that I can enjoy over and over again and have enjoyed over and over
1: again. Simplicity from one of the great chefs in the world. Well, that's it for today. An honor and a pleasure, Chef Keller. Thank you so much for making time for us. You're welcome. I just want to
0: mention one thing, if I have a minute, Tom. I just want to say thank, you know, all the people that were involved in this book Uh you know, David Breeden, who's the chef of the French Lonnie, Corey, Corey Challa, the chef at Se. Owen Boyles, who's, who's back in the UK now, who's who I, I just, you know, I think he's one of the best pastry chefs in, in the world. Uh, I just have so much admiration, and respect for him. Uh, Susie Heller, Michael Ruhlman, Deborah Jones, you know, uh, our, our publisher at Artisan, all those individuals who really make this book, this book in the same way that, when we talk about a restaurant and the team efforts that's made in the restaurant, this, this book is, is truly an effort of a lot of people, but great talent, great commitment, great dedication to bring bringing and publishing a book of this of this nature so i just want to thank all of them
1: well thank you and it's one hell of a book and it's the french laundry per se it is beautiful it's a book that you want to take to bed and if you're my level cooking you probably won't be able to cook from but you can aspire to greatness and that's the wonderful thing about it but it is i love food books i love cookbooks and it really is a classic so thank you very much chef keller and huge thanks of course to you as well for tuning in Remember, you can subscribe to Fortnum's Hungry Minds wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. Goodbye.